0: Lesson 2 for April 4-10, to 10, Baptism and the Temptations Sabbath Afternoon, April 4 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this week we're studying about the baptism of Jesus, and then what happened afterwards. And each of us passes through a stage in our lives where we commit ourselves to You and then There are problems that come. We pray that as we see how Jesus handled all this, that we may be strengthened, and we may know that you are there to be with us at all times. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Let's read that again. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. As we saw last week... Luke provides a list of great historical dignitaries to, we believe, help show that his account of history and John is as real and as historical as these powerful men. But there's another important reason to mention these mighty men of power and influence – It is to contrast them with the humble man of the wilderness, John the Baptist, God's chosen messenger who was to prepare the way for the most significant event in all human history so far, the coming of Jesus, the world's Redeemer. How interesting that God chose not one of the world's great men to herald the Messiah, but one of the lowliest ones instead. Scholars put all these historic personalities together and give us a date close to AD 27 or 28 for the start of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. It is within the historical time frame of these Roman Empire luminaries that Jesus was baptised and received the benediction of heaven that he is God's beloved son, as it says in Luke 3.22. Luke establishes this fact right at the outset, even before he presents to his readers the orderly account of the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. Sunday, April 5, Prepare the Way of the Lord. In Luke chapter 3, John appears in his unique and crucial role in salvation history. Whatever else one could say about John's preaching, he was not sugarcoating his words in order to please the crowd. Question. Read Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through to 14. His words are filled with important truths, not just for those within earshot, but for all of us. What points, in particular, can you take from what John is saying here? Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore... Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Repentance is not just a theoretical notion. It is a way of life. The word comes from the Greek metanoia, which means a change of mind, and this leads to a new life. To baptise means to dip or immerse fully in water. Immersion has a profound meaning. Even before the time of John, the Jews had attached meaning to baptism by immersion. It was a common practice when Gentile proselytes chose to join the Jewish faith. In inviting Jews to be baptised, John the Baptist was setting forth a new principle. Baptism is an occasion to publicly renounce one's old sinful ways and to prepare oneself for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist thus introduced a symbolic act of renunciation of sin and consecration to a new way of life as citizens of the Messianic Kingdom, which was about to be inaugurated. John was quick to add that He was baptizing only with water. For the one who was to follow Him, as it says in Luke 3.16, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Thus a crucial point is made. Baptism as an act of immersion in water is only an outer symbol of an inward change, a change that would eventually be sealed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so to finish today, read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. But, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What spiritual lessons is the Apostle Paul drawing out of the act of baptism? Note the comparison he makes between the act of immersion and rising out of the water with dying to sin and living for righteousness. How have you experienced the reality of this new life in Christ? Monday, April six. You are my beloved son. In Luke chapter two, verses forty one through to fifty, we read the famous story of Joseph and Mary's losing sight of Jesus in Jerusalem. Let's read that. Luke chapter two, verse forty one. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers but they did not understand the statements which he spoke to them. What's especially fascinating is Jesus' response to Mary when she rebukes him in verse 48. Jesus' answer is an affirmation of his divine self-consciousness that he is the Son of God. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? As the next verse says, Joseph and Mary didn't grasp the implications of what Jesus had said to them. In all fairness, how could they? After all, even the disciples after years with Jesus were still not totally certain of who he was and what he was to do. For example, after his resurrection, Jesus was talking to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One of them, in referring to Jesus, had said that Jesus was a prophet mighty indeed and word before god and all the people jesus of course was much more than a prophet even then they still didn't grasp who he was and what he had come to do question read matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to 17 john chapter 1 verses 29 to 34 And Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. What is the significance of Jesus' baptism? Well, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in John... Chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and who remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. At his baptism, heaven attested that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus sought baptism not because he needed it as part of a post-repentance process, but to set an example for others. That's what we read in Matthew chapter three. Three important factors stand out concerning the baptism of Jesus: one, the Baptist proclamation, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world," in John chapter one twenty-nine. Two the Holy Spirit's anointing him for his mission ahead, and three, the heavenly proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, in whom the Father is well pleased. So to finish today, think about it. The spotless Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, was baptized by a mere human being, all part of the plan of salvation. How should this amazing condescension on his part help us to be willing to humble ourselves whenever the occasion warrants it? Tuesday, April 7, not by bread alone. Luke 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. Born for a God-ordained mission, commissioned to the task at his baptism, equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit... Jesus, the Christ, retreated into the wilderness to contemplate the task ahead. The temptation in the wilderness was a significant battle between Christ and Satan in the great controversy which has raged ever since Lucifer's rebellion in heaven. In the wilderness, when the Saviour was weak from 40 days of fasting, when the journey ahead looked bleak and weary, Satan took personal command in his attack against Jesus. Then a quote from the Desire of Ages, page 116. Satan saw that he must either conquer or be conquered. The issues of the conflict involved too much to be entrusted to his confederate angels. He must personally conduct the warfare. Question. Note what Satan said to Christ in Luke chapter 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God command this stone to become bread. What is Satan trying to do in this account that reflects what he attempted to do in heaven? Bread is not the central issue here. Yes, the 40-day fasting in the wilderness must have made the Saviour hungry, and Satan used this circumstance as bait. But Satan knew that Jesus is the creator of the universe. To him who created the universe out of nothing, making bread out of a stone was not an issue. The crucial point in the temptation is found in its preface. If you are the Son of God. Only forty days before, the voice from heaven attested that Jesus was indeed the Son of God— And now, should Jesus doubt that heavenly assurance? Doubting God's word is the first step in a yielding to temptation. In heaven, Satan challenged the authority of Jesus. He does so here as well, even if in a much more subtle manner than he tried in heaven. So to finish today, how can you learn not to succumb to Satan's attempts to get you as he tries with all of us to doubt God's promises. Wednesday, April 8, Worship Me. Read Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Why would Satan want Jesus to worship him? What crucial issue was at stake here? Beginning at verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me... And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Worship is the sole prerogative of God. It is the one factor that forever separates the creatures from the Creator. One of the issues in Lucifer's rebellion against God in heaven is that of worship. Lucifer's ambition was well summarized by Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High to ascend to heaven, to exalt his throne above the stars of heaven, to be like the Most High. It was an attempt to usurp the authority that belongs only to the Creator and never to any creature, no matter how exalted. In this context we can better understand what is happening in this temptation. When Jesus was about to set out on his mission to redeem the world back to God's ownership and authority, Satan took him to the top of a mountain, provided a panoramic view of all the kingdoms, and offered them to him for a simple act. Luke 4 verse 7 If you will worship before me, all will be yours. Satan was trying to divert Christ's perspective from his divine priority and to entice him with pomp and glory for no greater price than just a bow. He was trying to get here, again, the authority and worship that he failed to get in heaven. Notice how Christ dismissed the tempter with utter contempt. Get behind me, Satan. That's verse 8. Worship and the service that goes with it belong to the Creator God alone. Here again, the word of the Lord comes to His help. Did not inspiration say through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, you shall fear the Lord your God, and serve Him. Absolutely resolving to follow God in faith and obedience is the ultimate answer to Satan's lies and tricks. And so to finish today, any of us can face temptations to compromise our faith, even in small ways. Your job, your passing of a university examination, your promotion demands a compromise in regard to Sabbath. At what point can you make a deal? When, if ever, is the price right? Thursday, April 9, Christ the Victor. Luke and Matthew reverse the order of the second and third temptations. The reason is not clear, but that need not detain us. The crucial point is the ultimate victory of Jesus over Satan, proclaimed by both Gospels. The significant factor that emerges from study of the temptations is that Jesus Christ is a real person, tempted as we are, but without sin, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. With victory in each of the temptations, with his triumph over Satan, with the word of God in his mouth, and connected with heaven's powerhouse through prayer, Jesus emerges to proclaim the kingdom of God and to inaugurate the messianic age. Question. Read Luke chapter 4 verses 9 to 13 and Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 to 7. In the first two temptations, Jesus used the scripture to overcome Satan's enticements. Now, in the third, Satan does the same and quotes the scripture to test whether Jesus really takes the word of God seriously. What is happening here, and how does Jesus respond? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended his every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. And then Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, the most sacred place in Jewish history. The city of Zion, the temple where God dwells among his people, becomes the avenue for Satan's confrontation with Jesus. If you are the Son of God is once again the preface. Watch what Satan says. If God is indeed your father... And if your mission is indeed at his bidding, throw yourself down from the pinnacle. Surely, if all that is true, God will not let you get hurt. He then quotes scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Satan knows the scripture, but it misinterprets it. His tactic is to lead Jesus to put God to the test. God has indeed promised the protection of his angels, but only within the context of doing His will, such as in the case of Daniel and his companions. Jesus answers Satan decisively again by using Scripture, declaring that it is not for us to put God to the test. Our duty is to place ourselves in God's will and let Him do the rest. Note four major biblical teachings on temptation. 1. No one is free from temptations. 2. When God allows temptations to come to us, he also provides grace to resist and strength to overcome. 3. Temptations do not come the same way every time. And 4. No one is tempted beyond his or her strength to bear, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, "...no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man." But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Friday, April 10. From the book Desire of Ages, page 83. If Joseph and Mary had stayed their minds upon God by meditation and prayer, they would have realised the sacredness of their trust and would not have lost sight of Jesus. By one day's neglect they lost the Saviour, but it cost them three days of anxious search to find him. So with us, By idle talk, evil speaking, or neglect of prayer, we may in one day lose the Saviour's presence. And it may take many days of sorrowful search to find Him and regain the peace that we have lost. And that brings us to our five discussion questions this week. 1. Temptation in itself is not sin. In the biblical sense, temptation has the potential to affirm the possibilities of holiness. To be tempted is one thing, to fall into sin another. At the same time, what is our responsibility about doing all that we can, even to avoid temptation? 2. Philosophers and theologians often talk about what they call a meta-narrative, a grand overarching story or theme in which other stories occur. To put it another way, a meta-narrative is the background, the context in which other stories and events unfold. As Seventh-day Adventists, we see the great controversy as the meta-narrative or background for what has been happening, not only here on earth, but in heaven as well. What texts in the Bible show us the reality of the great controversy and how it helps explain what is going on in the world? 3. What are some of the most powerful Bible texts that promise us victory over the temptations that come our way? Why, though, even with these promises, is it still so easy to fall? 4. One of the daily studies this week made the following statement. Doubting God's word is the first step in yielding to temptation. Why would that be so? And five. In what ways can idolatry be much more subtle than bowing down and worshipping something other than the Lord? And before we leave today, tomorrow, this Sabbath... I hope to be attending the English-speaking church in Kaohsiung in Taiwan. If anyone from there is listening to this, expect me to turn up. I hope to experience a beautiful Sabbath in a beautiful country, some of whose people I met when I worked back in the 1970s in Hong Kong in China. God bless everyone and have a great Sabbath this week. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Witness of a House Church, and it's from Zhang Wei from China. Zhang Wei was no ordinary citizen. He had served faithfully in the Chinese army, and as a well-respected individual, he served as mayor of his village. There came a time, however, when Zhang Wei decided to move to a large city where he could earn more money in construction. One day, as he was walking along a city street, something caught his attention. He heard singing coming from the ground level of a large apartment building. Drawing closer, he looked through the open windows and saw people singing and praying together. Soon, someone stepped outside of the apartment and invited Zhang Wei to come in. Claiming to be Buddhist, Zhang Wei was somewhat reticent to step inside... But as he was curious to learn more, he finally decided to enter this Seventh-day Adventist house church. He noticed that many of the people had Bibles, and he wanted to learn more about this unusual book. Happily, the Adventists shared with Zhang Wei some of their most treasured Bible truths and prayed with him. Zhang Wei often returned to the Adventist house church. One day, the subject of healthy living came up, including diet. Explaining the biblical laws of clean and unclean meats, the members told Zhang Wei that pigs were unclean and that often the animals were infested with worms. Not believing them, Zhang Wei decided to conduct a little experiment. Many people worked at the same construction site and the company cook would sometimes purchase an entire pig to feed the crew. Curious to see how unclean the pig was, when no one was looking, Zhang Wei quickly took a knife and sliced the animal open, and found the swine's flesh crawling with worms from head to hoof. Shocked and disgusted, he never ate pork again. Before long, Zhang Wei accepted all of the Bible truths and was baptised into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. After his baptism, however, the pastor encouraged Zhang Wei to return to his home village and let his light shine for Jesus. Zhang Wei returned to his village where he began an Adventist house church with just one person, himself. But he started sharing the things he had learned from the Bible with others, and soon the church grew. Today... The county where Zhang Wei lives has six Adventist churches and three neighbouring counties each have churches due to the prayers and powerful witness of Zhang Wei. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.